Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com. This is Antiwar News for Monday, December 12th, 2022. So the first story at the top of Antiwar.com today. NATO chief says that war with Russia is a real possibility. So this is Hen Stoltenberg, the NATO Secretary General. He warned on Friday that he fears a full-blown war between Russia and NATO is a real possibility in a rare acknowledgement of the dangers of backing Ukraine. So he said, quote, I fear that the war in Ukraine will get out of control and spread into a major war between NATO and Russia. If things go wrong, they can go horribly wrong, end quote. So that's a pretty um, big statement there from the, the head of NATO, um, just him admitting that he thinks this thing could really spiral into a direct conflict between NATO and Russia, which we all know could very quickly turn turn nuclear. And we know, you know, Russian officials have made clear that they believe they are fighting NATO in Ukraine, that they're not just fighting Ukrainian forces. They're viewing this basically as a war against the U.S. and NATO as well. Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, he recently said that both the U.S. and NATO are directly participating in the war in Ukraine. And this means, you know, that Russia, from their viewpoint, they have the pretext for strikes on, say, NATO bases in Europe if they choose to take that step. Thankfully, they have not made that decision. So despite this huge risk, Stoltenberg stressed that NATO countries should continue arming Ukraine and that the best way to deter Russia is to strengthen the alliance's positions in Eastern Europe, you know, and that's in the Baltic states and in Poland, what they call NATO's Eastern flank. Stoltenberg said that Putin knows it's one for all and all for one. You know, he's referring to their NATO's mutual defense commitments under Article 5 of the NATO treaty. And the risk of es escalation rose last week after Ukrainian drones struck air bases hundreds of miles deep inside of Russian territory. And we're going to get much more into that in the next article. So Stoltenberg said that he understands why some people in Europe are getting tired of supporting Ukraine as they face rising energy and food prices. But he's claiming that the continent's peace and freedom would be threatened if Putin wins in Ukraine. So it's the narrative that you know, if Putin wins in Ukraine, he's not going to stop in Ukraine, even though he's never made any effort to capture ter territory in Western Ukraine. And it, there's no reason to think that that's his goal here. But, you know, that's the narrative. And even though Stoltenberg recognizes the risks, he's still, you know, leading this just completely reckless policy. All right. So the next one here, this is a big one. The Pentagon gives tacit support for Ukrainian drone attacks deep inside Russia. So this was according to the Times, the Times of London. They reported this on Friday, citing unnamed U.S. defense officials. They said that the Pentagon has given its tacit endorsement of Ukrainian attacks inside Russian territory, and it no longer fears that such operations could lead to a dramatic Russian escalation, which they previously feared. And this position, you know, based on this report, reading this report and what these officials are saying, this is based on just the fact that up to this point, Russia has not responded to attacks on its territory 
with nuclear weapons or by attacking NATO countries. So this is the justification. You know, I've heard this a lot from, you know, major hawks, you know, like think tankers and and really hawkish members of Congress. That's kind of their line of thinking. Well, he hasn't used a nuke yet, so let's just keep escalating. But and and this apparently is thinking that's going on within the Pentagon. So just I just wanted to read a, a excerpt from this report from the Times. It reads, quote, Moscow's revenge attacks have to date all involved conventional missile strikes against civilian targets. Previously, the Pentagon was warier of Ukraine attacking Russia because it feared the Kremlin would retaliate either with tactical nuclear weapons or by targeting NATO nations, end quote. So I just just to stress the point that that's how they're justifying this say okay yeah these strikes are good now because he hasn't you know putin hasn't uh done either of those things yet but i mean if you keep escalating that's a risk of course and this report came after ukrainian drone attacks hit russian air bases deep inside russian territory including one that killed three russian soldiers and damaged two russian bombers so one base that they attacked was like three, 400 miles from the Ukrainian border where the three Russian, Russian soldiers were killed. And apparently that base houses, uh, you know, nuclear capable bombers. So that could be considered by Russia an attack on its strategic, you know, deterrence. So following those attacks, Russian missiles pounded Ukrainian energy infrastructure, worsening the already dire situation for millions of Ukrainian civilians who are without power and heat in freezing temperatures. It's freezing in Ukraine now. So, I mean, I guess that's not a consequence that, you know, the Pentagon or the Americans care about. I mean, it's a really bad situation. Just again, on Saturday, they, they, um, they took out basically all the power in Odessa in the whole city. It sounds like millions of Ukrainians there without power, heat, water, and Russia didn't start launching these large scale, scale attacks on Ukrainian energy infrastructure until October. And that was a response to the truck bombing of the Kerch Bridge, which connects Crimea to the Russian mainland. So you see how Russia responds to those attacks with big escalations, huge escalations. And right now, they're still focusing on conventional attacks on Ukrainian energy infrastructure. But if they're going to escalate, what's the next step? I mean, what is the next level here? Um. And before, you know, this attack on the Kerch Bridge, U.S. officials did come out and say that they support Ukrainian attacks on Crimea. So the Times report said that the U.S. does not want to publicly give Ukraine the green light to attack targets inside Russia. And in public comments since these recent drone attacks, U.S. officials have said that they are not encouraging or enabling Ukrainian strikes inside Russian territory. But a U.S. defense official said that it's up to Ukraine where they attack and that they have limited restrictions on using U.S.-provided weapons. So this official said, quote, We're not saying to Kiev, don't strike the Russians in Russia or Crimea. We can't tell them what to do. It's up to them how they use their weapons, end quote. So really, they're saying that there are few limits on how they use U.S.-provided weapons. This official said that they have to conform to the you know, international law and the Geneva Convention, but I mean, that's not something that the U.S. seriously is concerned about. But this, these comments appear to mark a shift in the U.S. policy because 
before the Biden administration sent Ukraine the high the high Mars rocket launch systems, they said that they got assurances from Ukraine that they would not be used to target Russian territory. So now the rhetoric is changing. Uh, John Kirby, who's the National Security Council spokesman, he said this publicly last week after this these attacks. He said, quote, when we give them a weapon system, it belongs to them where they use it, how they use it, how much ammunition they use to use that system. I mean, those are Ukrainian decisions and we respect that, end quote. So that's a shift. They weren't saying that before. And so far, you know, there's been no confirmation of Ukraine using U.S. weapons to hit targets inside Russian territory. There's been a lot of Ukrainian shelling in Belgorod, which is a Russian territory that borders, you know, like the Kharkiv region. And that could be done with howitzers, but provided by the U.S., but I haven't seen confirmation of that. And then in these drone attacks, Russia said that Ukraine used uh, modified Soviet-made drones to launch the attacks. But the Times report said that now, you know, with the U.S. tacitly backing these Ukrainian attacks inside Russia, the Biden administration will be more likely to provide longer-range weapons that Ukraine has been seeking. A senior U.S. defense official said that nothing is off the table. And the thing that Ukraine has really been asking for is these Army Tactical Missile Systems, or ATASMs, which have a range of about 190 miles. They can be fired from the HIMARS, although there was a report in the Wall Street Journal recently that said the U.S. has modified the HIMARS they've been sending Ukraine so they can't fire munitions with a range of greater than 50 miles. But who knows, you know, if they're all modified, you know, who knows what's what there. So, I mean, just... The bottom line here is that while the U.S., they, they no longer fear escalation, you know, Russia could s- still really escalate this thing. Uh, so it's just very, very reckless um, that they are now supporting or uh, these attacks inside Russia. All right, the next one here. So this is actually from uh, Ray McGovern. Uh, this is a viewpoint that he wrote for us. And it's about something that Putin said on Friday, I believe. Yeah, on Friday that he was considering changing Russia's nuclear doctrine to allow preventative strikes. So I actually thought, I didn't really think too much of this um, because, you know, the headlines were Russia considers first strike policy. And technically, you know, they don't have a no first use policy. So I didn't really think much of it, but I guess, you know, the Russian nuclear doctrine is that they would use nuclear weapons if they're under if their existence was threatened, if there was an existential threat. So then Putin was asked at a press conference about this, um, the comments that he made the other day about if Russia doesn't use nuclear weapons first, it won't use them second, meaning that if Russia is attacked by a bunch of nukes, you know, they might not be able to retaliate. So when he was asked about that, I'll just read the quote. You know, this is translated. uh, This is on the Kremlin's English language website. It's a little confusing, but I'll just read what Putin said, and then I'll tell you what Ray thinks of all this. Putin said, quote, the United States has this theory of a prevented, preventive strike. They are developing a system for a disarming strike. Regarding a disarming strike, perhaps we think about using their ideas about how to ensure their own security. We are just thinking about this, end quote. So Ray says that this is a big deal. Um, so you go check that out so you could read, you know, really his take on it. But the news there is that Putin says they're considering this. And and 
this wasn't really, they didn't really make a big deal about this in the Western media. And that's a point that Ray makes that they're kind of missing, you know, every other comment that he makes about nuclear weapons, they make a huge deal about. And he's saying that they're missing something with this. All right. The next story, U.S. announces a new $275 million arms package for Ukraine. So this is just the latest arms package. Um, it's mostly high Mars ammunition for the high Mars and artillery rounds. So according to the Pentagon, this package brings it up to $19.3 billion just in what the U.S. has pledged to Ukraine in military equipment alone since Russia invaded. So this package includes the HIMARS ammunition, 80,155 millimeter artillery rounds, counter unmanned aerial systems equipment, counter air defense capability, high mobility multi-purpose wheeled vehicles, ambulances and medical equipment, approximately 150 generators, that's because they're dealing with all these power outages, and field equipment. So really the big number here is the artillery rounds, 155 millimeter artillery rounds. This brings total rounds of that type of artillery pledged to Ukraine to over 1 million. I mean, it's just an incredible amount of ammunition that the U.S. has been sending, depleting its own military stockpiles. Now the Army is planning to dramatically increase its ammunition production. Again, it's just a total boon for all the weapons makers out there. Um, okay, so the next one here, U.S. Central Command says that two were killed in a raid against ISIS in eastern Syria. So the U.S. launched a raid in eastern Syria early Sunday morning, and CENTCOM said that they killed two ISIS officials, which whatever that means. Um, and they named one as Agnes, just one name, uh, which is kind of strange. And said that this person was involved in ISIS's plotting. I mean, it's really vague here. Uh, I just figured I'd write this up because um, people need to be aware that the U.S. Is, has been launching a lot of raids and drone strikes against ISIS over the past few months. And so the command, you know, they, they released very little detail. They claimed, as always, that no civilians were harmed. But we always have to keep in mind that they're notorious for under, undercounting civilian casualties. And it's strange that they're not even saying ISIS leaders. They're saying ISIS officials, um, you know, even though based on this press release, all the write-ups about it in the mainstream media, you know, call them ISIS leaders, but they're not even claiming that. They're saying ISIS officials. Um, so the U.S. has launched multiple raids and drone strikes against ISIS in Syria over the past few months. You know, ISIS doesn't control any territory in Syria. You know, they're in very rural areas. And when they launch these attacks and drone strikes, it's not like they're attacking a big group of ISIS fighters. It's usually a few people. And, and this comes, you know, despite President Biden, when he visited the Middle East, he claimed that the U.S. was not engaged in combat missions in the region. And, and like right around that visit, there was more of these drone strikes and raids, and they killed a few people. Um, so... The U.S., as I always go over, they maintain about 1,000 troops, an occupation force of about 1,000 troops in eastern Syria, and they back the Kurdish-led SDF. And this allows the U.S. to control about one-third of Syria. It's a huge portion of Syria that the U.S. has control over. And while on paper the U.S. presence in Syria is about fighting ISIS, the group barely has a foothold in the country. It's more about the economic war on the Syrian government and the Syrian people. 
And the SDF, you know, the Kurdish group, they've been unhappy with the U.S. efforts to prevent a Turkish ground offensive in Syria. Because of that, they recently asked Russia to mediate a security deal with the Assad government. It really blows a hole in the whole narrative that if the U.S. leaves Syria, they're abandoning the Kurds because they always say, you know, they'll have a rapprochement with Damascus if the U.S. leaves. And if the U.S. does leave, you know, the Syrian government is a sworn enemy of ISIS. They could work, them and their allies could work with the SDF against ISIS. No problem. It's not like they control major cities anymore. And of course, on top of the occupation, the U.S. maintains crippling economic sanctions on Syria with the purpose of preventing the country from rebuilding after 11 years of war. It's a very cruel policy. It's had a devastating impact on Syrian civilians as a U.N. special rapporteur on torture. Uh, Not on torture. On I forget her position. It's on like unilateral economic or coercive measures. Um, You know, it's basically outlined how it really hurts civilians in Syria. Okay, so the next one, Israel strikes southern Syria and they drop threatening leaflets. So Israel um, is always bombing Syria. I believe these are the first reported airstrikes in Syria in December. So they targeted areas of southern Syria near the Golan Heights. And they this happened late Saturday and reports said that the strikes hit a Syrian military radar system. And in an area of Syria known as Tel al-Khalib, although the incident has not been confirmed by Syrian state media, they usually report on Israeli airstrikes. I didn't see anything in there. But the IDF appeared to take credit for the missile strikes in the leaflets that they dropped. They dropped leaflets saying, uh, basically, you know, threatening Syrian forces, telling them not to cooperate with Hezbollah. This is according to the Times of Israel. The leaflets read, quote, time after time, you have been responsible for the harm caused by your decisions. The continuing presence of Hezbollah in the area of Tel Aqualib and the collaboration with it has brought and will bring you nothing good. The presence of Hezbollah in the area has brought you humiliation and you are paying the price for that, end quote. So, um, Again, Israel frequently bombs Syria, but the IDF rarely acknowledges individual strikes. The Israelis frame their operations in Syria as attacks against Iran and Hezbollah, but they frequently kill Syrian soldiers and target civilian infrastructure, including airports in Damascus and Aleppo. And there's a, there was a report over the weekend. I don't know. I haven't seen this really anywhere else, although... Israeli media did report on the report, and it's from Ashark al-Ausit, which is an Arabic newspaper based in London. And I thought they were Saudi-funded, but I'm not sure about that now. Um, Anyway, so they reported on Saturday, citing unnamed Israeli political sources, that Israel threatened Lebanon, that it could bomb Beirut's international airport. And this threat was made based on allegations made in Saudi media that Iran has used civilian flights into the, into the airport to transfer weapons to Hezbollah, which Lebanon has denied. But I mean, just the fact that Israel might be threatening to bomb the Beirut National uh, International Airport is really something. Um, I would have made this, you know, a top story if there was more confirmation of it. So I'm going to keep an eye out for it. But I mean, it's pretty brazen if they're really doing that. All right. So the next one, this is from the South China Morning Post. 
Senior U.S. diplomats visit China in the wake of Bali talks, but little hope of a full thaw. So the U.S. State Department, um, some senior U.S. diplomats arrived in China. It looks like they were due to arrive on Sunday or Monday in China, so they should already be there. And this is following the Xi-Biden talks that were held in Bali, Indonesia at the G20 summit last month. So this U.S. delegation is being led by Daniel Crittenbrink, the Assistant Secretary of State for East Asia and the Pacific, and Laura Rosenberger, who is the Senior Director for China and Taiwan at the National Security Council. So the China trip is part of a whirlwind December 11th to 14th visit to Asia that will also take in close U.S. allies. So they're going to South Korea and Japan as well, so they're probably not going to be in China for very long. But according to the State Department on Saturday, the trip aims, aims to continual Sorry, to continue responsibly managing the competition between the two countries and to explore potential areas of cooperation. So if you hear what this is how they word it and the the take here from the South China Morning Post and their analysts that they talk to, who I think are, are they usually uh, get things pretty right when it comes to U.S.-China relations, is that you know, they're going, but there's not really hopes of a thaw in relations. And I think the fact that they keep saying this, they said this before the Biden-Xi talk, and they say this whenever Lloyd Austin speaks with his Chinese counterpart, that what they're trying to do is responsibly manage the competition between the two countries, not trying to so much resolve issues. They're trying to manage their issues. Um, so that's how they approach this. But still, I mean, I think diplomacy is good you know we should be happy that they're talking and austin has been and the military ha, ha, the militaries have been talking more so it's good um all right so the next one another one from the south china morning post and she the chinese president was just in saudi arabia and china and saudi arabia pledged to further expand their cooperation to areas such as technology security and iran in a joint declaration during xi jinping's visit to the kingdom friday's declaration stressed the importance of continuing cooperation in all fields and deepening their relations within the framework of a comprehensive strategic partnership established in 2016. So I've seen some people say, you know, this is a huge deal. This is, means Saudi Arabia is turning away from the U.S. completely. Um, but I don't think that's the case. I mean, this mentions they, they made a partnership in 2016. And I've actually feel like I've seen the Saudis do this before when things are a little rocky with the U.S. You know, they turn to China, Russia, get all cozy with them, and then they kind of get what they want out of the U.S., so this could be part of their maneuvering there. But still, it's definitely significant. You know, there's the fact, I mean, has she gone to any other country besides, go, you know, traveling for the Indonesia summit? But just for a visit like this, this is, I think, you know, it is a definitely a big deal. Um, so I'm sure that the U.S. isn't happy about it and the Biden administration isn't happy about it. And then the declaration included a joint statement on Iran, which is, of course, Riyadh's longtime rival, but is a strategic partner for Beijing. The two agreed to work together to guarantee the peaceful nature of Iran's nuclear program and called on Iran to maintain a non-proliferation regime while emphasizing respect for the principles of good neighborliness. 
So, yeah, just something to keep an eye on as China's ties with Saudi grow. I know, you know, they're also really increasing cooperation with Israel, and the U.S. has been trying to stop that. Um, they weren't happy about what China's investments in Israel. I think they had some big plans to invest in more so in Israel, and the U.S. kind of tried to put the tried to put a stop to that. All right, so the last news story here, this is from Kyle Anzalone at the Libertarian Institute, and those guys are doing their fundraiser over there. If you want to go support them, you know, that's Scott Horton. They're, uh, you know, we work very closely with all them. Of course, Scott is our editorial director. So this is from Kyle Anzalone, who's our opinion editor, and he writes news articles for us as well, and he writes news stuff for the Libertarian Institute. Three Democratic lawmakers make a diplomatic visit to Cuba. So a delegation from the Congressional Progressive Caucus met with the Cuban president in a rare high-level meeting among government officials. Of course, Washington maintains a Cold War-era embargo against Havana. So the Associated Press reported that Representatives James McGovern, Mark Pocan, and Troy Carter met with Cuban President Miguel Diaz-Canel in Havana on Sunday. So the Cuban president tweeted, quote, we address our differences and topics of common interest. The shared will to improve bilateral relations was ratified. I express the need to put an end to the measures that harm the Cuban population, end quote. So near the end of his second term, Obama took a a number of steps to normalize relations with Cuba, but he never fully lifted the embargo and that allowed President Trump to you know, walk back just about everything that that Obama did. And Biden, like, eased some sanctions on Cuba, but very minor sanctions. He hasn't really done anything uh, that's significant. So maybe this is a sign, because I think these Democrats, I mean, I don't know much about McGovern, these people in particular, but I think the Congressional Progressive Caucus is, you know, the progressives are, are, uh, you know, really falling in line with Biden. So, I, you know, I doubt they would make this trip if the Biden administration didn't want them to. I haven't seen any. I'm surprised, you know, people like Marco Rubio, you know, criticize them for going, but I'm sure, uh, you know, if he hears about it, he will. Uh, that's it for the news. Again, go check out that piece from Ray McGovern about what he says is Putin making a real nuclear threat because that seems pretty important. Um, we have another one from Karen Greenberg and Tom Englehart confronting America's forever prison about Guantanamo Bay, Gitmo, that of course is still open. One from Alexander Rubenstein over at the Gray Zone. The ADL issues a statement declaring that Ukraine's Azov Battalion is no longer far right. Wow, that's just something, you know, the openly a group that was described before February 24th in the Western media as openly neo-Nazi. The ADL says, oh, they're good now. That's really something. Man. Um, Spotlight, William Hartung over at Responsible Statecraft about the, the National Defense Authorization Act, the 2023 NDAA, and just all that crazy uh, spending that's going on. Uh, But that's it for me for today. I will be back tomorrow with some more news for you. Um, You could support the show just by liking and subscribing on YouTube and Odyssey and Rumble. 
where you get the video, leaving reviews. You can always support antiwar.com, antiwar.com slash donate. Uh, that's it. You know, share the show with your friends and all that good stuff. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Thanks for listening.